Hi, everyone. My name is Jenna Spinelli, and I host a podcast called Democracy Works. If you enjoy the strategic, thought-provoking conversations and discussion of what unites us as Americans, you'll want to check it out. Each episode examines a different aspect of what it means to live in a democracy and the role that each of us has to play in building and sustaining a healthy democracy. New episodes are released every Monday, and you can find them at democracyworkspodcast.com or by searching Democracy Works in your favorite podcast app. Foreign authoritarian powers like Russia and China are attacking our democracy. They have interfered in our elections and have used social media as a weapon. Laura Rosenberger and Jamie Fly from the Alliance for Securing Democracy have done extensive research on why America and other democratic countries are under attack. The reason that, that Russia is attacking our democracy is, um, you know, our democracy is the core of our strength. And, and hitting us at that strength um, is really a means for, for Putin um, to try to weaken us as a country. In an example of just how dangerous these attacks can be, Jamie and Laura tell us how foreign powers have used social media to turn Americans against each other, not just online, but in person, too. And even the media and the police had no clue at that moment that this was entirely organized by foreign actors. America's strength lies in its democracy. But as a consumer of social media, are you able to tell what's legitimate debate versus outside noise? Listen in and become a more thoughtful consumer of social media. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. We have a pair of experts on today to talk about this, to talk about social media and how outside countries are trying to use that social media to chip away at the core of our democracy. We have Laura Rosenberger, director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy and senior fellow of the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. Laura, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And we have Jamie Fly, the senior fellow and co-director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Jamie, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. And also, we have one of our internal experts from the Bush Institute, Chris Walsh, who's on our human freedom team. Chris? Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. And actually, if I, could, if I can kick things off, Laura, I, I heard you recently say something that, that really resonated with me. And I think it's something that's, that's underappreciated. You said, democracy is an ongoing project and it's, it's never finished. And I, I think that's, some, that's not something we think about. So before we get into the broader topics about stuff that I know you're all working on in terms of uh, foreign malign influence and Russians and Chinese kind of trying to undermine our democratic process, let's, let's take a step back. Uh, I was thinking about this. And, you know, I think in our space, it's natural to say, you know, rah, rah democracy. We all believe in it. It's all the way to go. Uh, but we see the numbers in, in different polls that we have. A, we have a poll here, the Democracy Project, that we do with um, Freedom House and the Penn Biden Center that shows that there's, real, there's a real crisis of confidence in democracy nowadays in the institutions. I actually took a form, an informal poll at my house with my kids the other day. My Very eight-year-old, scientific. I know, I, I, I thought so. And I said, I said, you know, do it. You guys think democracy is a good thing? And I was pretty proud. My, my eight-year-old put his little fist pump and said, democracy. <laughs> but 
you know, as we think about a crisis of confidence in democracy, what, what about democracy, free markets, a free and open society is worth defending? Oh, boy. Well, thank you for starting off with this, Chris, because I think it is really important, important point. And, you know, if I can go back to some of the founding documents of our of our country, um, you know, our forefathers, um, and they were all forefathers um, in, in the document writing, um, talked about the, the need to, to form a, a more perfect union. Um, but it wasn't a perfect union. It was a more perfect union um, framed in a way that is something that we always need to strive for. You know, the United States has had a lot of blemishes throughout history, um, you know, whether that was treatment of, of Native Americans, um, whether that was slavery, um, whether that was um, various forms of religious discrimination, um, you know, we, we have a lot of blemishes, but we've always sought to perfect ourselves um, to improve what it is that our uh, founding fathers um, really sort of set out, which was a nation where uh, people um, are at the center of what we do, that government is responsive to the people. Um, and that it is those interests that actually propel forward um, human creativity, growth, um, prosperity. Um, and so for me, what's worth defending is, um, is number one, the civil liberties and, and human rights um, that I believe deeply in that are uh, really embedded in our, in our core founding documents and everything that we've done as a nation since. Um, you know, I believe that the values that the United States has um, championed, not just at home, uh, but around the world, are, are the values um, to which we should all continue to aspire. That means recognizing our where we fall short. Um, that means constantly working to perfect ourselves. Um, but that also means that, you know, democracy's hard. Um, it, it often, I mean, it involves compromise. Um, it involves needing to understand other perspectives. Um, and it involves needing to, you know, not just um, have a tyranny of either the majority or the minority. You know, our system of checks and balances was set up to guard against both of those things. Um, but that means that that compromise is something that's really always at the center of it, which is why, you know, I'm really uh, glad to be doing this project that we're talking about today in a, in a bipartisan way, because I think it is something that is necessary uh, to that constant striving to, to always work on the democratic project and never believe that the job is is finished. So Jamie, what made you guys want to do this project? Like was there a moment where you said to yourself, "Oh, this is this is a real pro- a real problem and we need to get to the bottom of it." What is what's happening and what caused you to go down this road? Well, I think for both of us and Laura can speak to her experience. Uh, the the formative experience was was the 2016 campaign. Um, on opposite sides of the aisle, I was Senator Rubio's foreign policy advisor during that campaign and working with him in the Senate. Uh, and even before I knew Laura, uh, what I experienced and watched play out both in the Republican primary and then in the general election disturbed me deeply in terms of the tactics that we saw in that case, Russia employ within our democracy in an attempt to undermine Americans uh, free speech, their confidence in their system. Uh, and as a, a longtime national security professional, someone who worked in the Bush administration, including in part on Russia policy is doing some arms control work and watched President Bush's relationship with Vladimir Putin evolve over those eight years. Uh, I remember working in the NSC in the, the late months of the Bush administration when we saw Russia invade Georgia. 
Uh, we had spent a lot of our time during those eight years trying to find ways to carve out areas of cooperation with uh, Russia under Putin. And at the end of the day, I think uh, we realized that we hadn't gotten as far as we had hoped. Um, and so someone who was passionate about U.S. policy towards Russia, about moving Russia in a better direction, now to see them flip the table, essentially, uh, and undermine, start to undermine our own democracy was deeply disturbing. Uh, and so when I met Laura and heard about her experiences and some of her ideas for raising awareness about this challenge, it was incredibly appealing because I think ultimately we don't want in future elections uh, the country to kind of go through the same situation that we faced uh, in 2016. And unfortunately now we've seen in, in subsequent elections in 2018 even when it maybe wasn't as high profile and as focused on a particular political candidate, but we've seen this uh, attempt to insert uh, for an authoritarian actor to insert themselves into our civic debates in a way that is deeply disturbing. What is Russia getting out of this? Why, why are they doing this? What's, what's their motivation? Well, I think their motivation is several fold. And one, it goes back to, to what you know, Chris asked about in the beginning. Why is, this, why is this something that's worth defending? Well, the reason that, that Russia is attacking our democracy is, um, you know, our democracy is the core of our strength. And and hitting us at that strength um, is really a means for for Putin um, to try to weaken us as a country. Um, it's not about firing bullets at us or piercing our, our borders through military means. In some ways, I think of it as more insidious and in terms of almost sort of planting a cancer um, from within and, and corrupting or weakening the institutions from within. It's harder to see, right? Attacks, um, physical attacks are much easier to point to. Um, but this is really about weakening weakening our pillars from within. You know, Putin is acting himself, though, out of weakness. Um, you know, Russia is a declining power. Um, its economy is shrinking. Um, you know, Putin is uh, increasingly uh, cracking down. You know, I mean, he's he's never been very good on, on human rights and political freedom, but his authoritarian grip on the country is continued to grow stronger and stronger as he feels more and more insecure. And so Putin has needed to find ways um, to to weaken others as a means of gaining relative power, right? Russia isn't going to grow as an economic powerhouse or return to being a global superpower. Um, but if Putin can level the playing field a bit by weakening his adversaries um, by attacking us in this way, um, then he can both tell his people, hey, look, democracy is kind of a mess. Like, look at what's happening over there. It's not really working out well for them, number one. Number two, he can say, look, hey, I'm restoring Russia to our previous greatness. Like, we're talked about all the time now. Um, you know, I'm I'm talked about as this big threat, and I'm challenging all these countries that are trying to, to hurt us and all that. And so, you know, Putin sort of gains legitimacy, is able to use it to gain legitimacy at home um, and to potentially discredit democracy and then really just, you know, keep the, the U.S. and our European allies um, kind of knocked off our game, um, you know, trying to sow disunity among us as part of his tactic, too. It's not just about attacking us internally in, in our politics, but it's about splitting the U.S. and our European allies, creating divisions within NATO, all of that. You know, that allows Putin to really just act as the spoiler. He's not playing the long game and trying to really create something. He's mostly just trying to to be a destructive force, and he's playing a, a, a sort of weak hand quite well. 
Can you give a, a tangible example of how he's used social media like, apart from the apart from the election, apart from the elections? Can you give some examples of what of things he's done um, to chip away at this democracy? I mean, one thing we've seen uh even in the before the 2016 election is the use of social media to actually kind of foment physical protests. And in one case here in Texas and Houston, uh, and some of that was just online organizing the sort that any civics group or uh, political party would do reaching out to potential supporters of their cause, attracting people to their uh, Facebook page who share a certain viewpoint. In this case, in in Texas, uh, it was uh, opposing groups that were uh, supporting kind of states' rights uh, versus a group of uh, American Muslims. And uh, a protest was advertised on social media for the same day, same place, same time for both groups. Neither group had any clue. The pages weren't linked that both sides were going to show up physically in Houston. Uh, Luckily, in that case, and people did show up, and this was entirely created externally by someone sitting in a foreign country. Uh, Those people honestly thought that they were responding to information put out by fellow Americans to advocate for causes they felt passionate about. Uh, Luckily, in that case, uh, local law enforcement was there and kept the groups on on two sides of the same street. Uh, If you actually look back, there's local media coverage of these protests at the time. And even the media and the police had no clue at that moment that this was entirely organized by foreign actors. So he's almost trying to light the spark that'll light the fire. That's the the danger. And luckily, in that case, there was not violence. Uh, We see uh, more tied to elections and uh, special counsel Mueller and some of his indictments has highlighted that these same tactics were used for uh, rallies or gatherings in other states in the run up to the actual election day, where people thought that they were coming out to support their candidate, uh, primarily in these cases, Donald Trump. And they thought that, you know, someone a town over or two towns over was getting them together. But again, these were operatives uh, operating uh, out of Russia who were actually bringing together Americans for that purpose. Now, those Americans have a right to organize for whatever candidate they want. The malign aspect here is uh, that you can be easily manipulated online and not even to this day. The interesting thing is some of these Americans have been approached by the media after these uh, uh, operations have been revealed. Many Americans don't even want to believe that they were manipulated, which is the sad thing. Uh, And you see this across both the left and the right as this infiltration of activist groups is is often revealed uh it's so damaging i think to many americans perceptions of their activity and themselves that they don't want to believe it uh and so i think we as a society just need to become more aware of these tactics it doesn't mean you should stop your civic activism if anything you should probably increase it but you should be careful about who you're doing it with and why you're doing it and for what cause and what ultimate purpose how do we reach people where they are and say this affects you every day? This is this is this is getting you at your everyday life. It's affecting the way you live your life. You care about it? How do essentially how do we get to a point where we say to you know we get people to say I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore uh, to get some passion about it to get to to recognize it's it's urgent. So I think it starts with a couple things. I mean, one is you know Americans are very proud and should be of of our democracy and our freedoms. But our ability to engage in in free speech, in speech, you know, on political issues, hot, divisive political issues, is something that we should protect until, you know, 
the end of the earth, right? Uh, and I will go down swinging for the ability for people I disagree with to be able, Americans I disagree with, to be able to say, um, you know, what they what they believe, um, and for me to be able to have a robust debate with them. But what I don't believe we should have, and what I actually think undermines our very ability to do that, is when we have some outside force coming in and manipulating that debate without either of us knowing that that debate is being manipulated, right? Jamie and I argue about tons of policy issues, right? I'm a Democrat. He's a Republican. We disagree on a number of different things. Don't get us started on Iran policy here. Um, But, you know... I believe that Jamie and I have not only a right, but personally, I I believe we as citizens have kind of an obligation to to have those conversations with one another. But that can't actually be uh, productive and constructive and have a an outcome that is in any way conducive to advancing policy or democracy if that debate is being manipulated by some third party covertly um, in in the process, right? And so I think that, you know, the the ability for Americans to be able to say, I want my free speech and I don't want anybody messing with it, understanding that it is a foreign adversary that is trying to come in and, you know, very much undercut the ability of Americans to have political discourse um, on the issues of the day is to me really at the at the core of, of this piece of the question. So, Jamie, last night I got on Facebook and I watched some highlights from Luka Doncic and the NBA All-Star Game and wished a friend happy birthday on his wall. So as I'm, as I'm just browsing my social media and just going about my day, what, what should I be looking for? I think the bottom line uh, from my perspective is is people need to ask more questions about why they're seeing certain information. Um, certainly, if they're going to click through and read uh, what appears to be a news story, uh, there's often advertisements that are, are masked or almost appear, uh, come across as a news story. Uh, ask who, who put that there? What's the ultimate source? Is it a legitimate news organization? Why am I seeing this? Uh, it's one thing if it's a friend's post uh, about something going on in their lives, obviously. That's why a lot of people are on especially Facebook. But if it is pushing a political message or some other message about uh, some development in society, uh, I would just be very careful and make sure that you try to figure out why it's there, where it's coming from. And to pick up on what Laura was was just talking about, I mean, the other concerning thing for me, I mean, I understand foreign policy is not a, it's rarely a top priority for many Americans in their day-to-day lives. And why should it be there? They've got many other things going on. The dangerous thing, especially about the trends we're seeing in social media, is almost all of these tools can be used by other actors, whether it's corporations, wealthy individuals who are trying to push a certain political agenda, uh, which may have nothing to do with foreign policy goals. It could even be something related to your community. If someone wants to get something done in your community on a very local issue, but they have money and they've got the the technical know-how to start a social media campaign to push it covertly, uh, that's becoming easier and easier to do. And we've actually seen some trends now because because of the success of what the Russians have done on social media, we've certainly seen other foreign actors begin to dabble in this space. But there's also some disturbing trends that American actors have begun to adopt some of these tactics for their own purposes. And so if you may think, I don't care about Ukraine, I don't care about Europe policy, I don't care what Vladimir Putin does in the Middle East, 
that's fine. I may disagree with you. But at the end of the day, this could come back and hit you very close to home, whether it's a local election or some local zoning issue that's being debated in your community. These tactics may be applied to shift opinion one way or the other. And ultimately, that's the real uh, danger, I think, especially about the social media influence campaigns uh, that we're starting to see. And the ultimate way to deal with that is more education, more awareness, more caution when you're online across the board asking as many questions as possible, and especially with your kids, for instance, teaching them to be better consumers and smarter consumers of information uh, that they see online. And Jamie, I'll, I'll ask you this, and but, but Laura, please jump in. Uh, I think I told you already that one of the things that I I really admire about what you all are doing is that this is bipartisan. Jamie, you're a Republican. Laura, you're a Democrat. I mean, this is this is what the America that I want, you know, coming together on a common issue. Yes, you said you disagree on stuff. But I, I feel like in this country, you see that maybe there's, you know, there's a belief that if you do believe in, in this foreign malign influence, that it's, you know, it's one way or another, or one party feels it's, it's you know, only targets one. Is, is this a threat to Republicans, Democrats, independents, everybody? Yeah, I mean, I, I call it equal opportunity uh, in terms of the threat. Uh, and we've seen this both in the Russian case. Uh, we in our monitoring of, of their social media tactics and looking at the issues and the groups that they often are pushing uh, you see them try to infiltrate activi- progressive activists as much as conservative activists. Unfortunately, in the debate we've been having <clears throat> post-2016, this is seen as a very partisan issue because it's tied to other issues related to the Mueller investigation, uh, allegations of collusion. But at the end of the day, for me, and I, I try to remind my Republican friends, you can be Donald Trump's biggest supporter and still be concerned about this issue. It has nothing to do with any debate in Washington about collusion. Uh, You can believe that Donald Trump was fairly elected and still be concerned about the fact that foreign powers, in this case Russia, are trying to manipulate our democracy. Um, So we need to get away, I think, from a lot of of the partisan politics on this issue. And uh, Republicans bear a lot of responsibility for that. And Laura and I also try to call out Democrats as well uh, when they try to take this serious issue and use it for partisan gain. Um, The interesting thing is we've actually seen a lot of bipartisan initiatives in Congress, especially uh, in the middle to late last year that started to bubble up bipartisan bills uh, from strange bedfellows on this issue often. Because of the broader political climate, though, honestly, not many of those bills have moved through Congress yet. I think we're still hopeful that over time that that may change. Uh, But, you know, people need to realize that both sides of the aisle are affected here the Russians and other authoritarian actors are not partisans. They don't care about one party over the other. They just want to foment debate and uh, kind of civil unrest in some of these cases and pit Americans against each other. Uh, And to do that, they're perfectly willing to masquerade online as Democrats one day or one hour and Republicans the next. And I don't think yet there's enough awareness about that fact. It's still seen through a very partisan lens. So, Laura, what do you think we're going to see in the lead up to the 2020 elections? So we already see, you know, a continuation. I mean, the the use of social media to manipulate our discourse never stopped after the 2016 election. In fact, there was actually a substantial increase in the amount of activity um, from known accounts um, operated by uh, Russian trolls um, uh, in 2017. Um, actually, in many ways, um, trying to take advantage of the anger um, that bubbled up on the left in response 
response to President Trump's election. Um, you know, we are, you know, the, the sort of angry, um, emotional outpouring provided a very fertile ground for potential uh, manipulation, particularly around divisive issues. Equal opportunity. Um, equal opportunity. Um, and so, you know, we saw, um, you know, that activity sort of increase um, in the run-up to the midterms. Um, that activity continued as well. Um, there was an indictment from the Department of Justice about a month before the midterm elections against the Internet Research Agency, which is what's often talked about as the quote-unquote St. Petersburg troll farm. Um, you know, that was indicted um, earlier once for its activity in the 2016 election. And then there was su- the subsequent indictment um, or, or charges um, against actually a bookkeeper for the Internet Research Agency about a month before the midterms. Um, basically saying that those activities uh, had continued and very similar kinds of tactics. Fake accounts masquerading as Americans, attempts to recruit activists um, to take some kind of action offline. Um, You know, the creation of, you know, one of the things that I think has been really worrisome for us is uh, this creation of of an ecosystem of web pages um, that masquerade um, as, as whether it's, you know, pretending to be a local news site um, or, or some other kind of, you know, site that, that is again, purporting to be something that it's not, um, you know, and then that those links to those sites are then shared through this network of accounts as well, driving internet traffic to, to different websites. Um, I think as we run into 2020, we're going to see a number of different tactics, many of a continuation, many of an evolution of those things. Um, one of the most concerning things that has been getting a lot of attention now is the way that um, artificial intelligence uh, may actually enhance um, the ability to create false or manipulated information. And so there's been a lot of conversation about something that's called, quote, deep fakes, um, which is um, audio uh, uh, content, video content that is manipulated, um, you know, both the video and the audio of it. Um, so that it essentially is imperceptible to the human eye um, that it has been manipulated, um, including for well-known uh, well-known public figures, um, you know. And um, there's a lot of concern that these kinds of um, you know video content, there's the ability to create this kind of content is becoming uh, much more readily available. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people may believe that, okay, so written information, I've got to be a little skeptical, but like, you know, we trust what we see with our own eyes, right? That's sort of what we are kind of brought up to do. And the idea that suddenly now video could appear that is like, we think we see something, right? You know, say there's a debate, uh, you know, in the 2020 elections and a candidate says, well, I believe and have always believed, you know, X, Y, Z. And five minutes after the debate ends, a video appears online of that politician appearing to say the exact opposite five years ago, right? Um, On some highly emotional issue. Um, And then there's outrage sparked and he, you know, this person's a hypocrite and uh, we can't believe anything they say because they're lying, you know, clearly, you know, da-da-da. And you can see where that cascades. And then maybe in the next, I don't know, 24 hours, that video is actually discredited and proven fake. But in the interim, that response of doubting that person's credibility probably sticks in at least some people, right? 
And, you know, one of the things that we found, you know, that's a problem with um, a, an approach to dealing with this um, this kind of content from a sort of fact-checking mindset is that, um, you know, lies uh, spread much faster and further than truth. And a lot of people who may see some manipulated content, bearing in mind that, again, a lot of it's not about false or not, um, you know, but a lot of people may never realize that what they saw wasn't, in fact, true. Um, so those kinds of sort of high-end technologies, I think, are, are a big concern for a lot of people um, as we sort of head into to 2020. And it's kind of human nature to, to look to look for and share content that you find that agrees with your worldview. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if it's if it's fake or not is often secondary when right. you're in the moment. You're like, oh, yeah. that, I totally agree with that. I'm going to share that. <laughs> That's right. As just human nature, not on a completely nonpartisan way. It's just mm-hmm. the mind, how the mind works. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a bigger. Uh, this is a big part of the broader problem with uh, the direction of our society on many of these issues. Is because and technology has enabled a lot of this is I think many Americans are increasingly consuming news and information from other Americans who agree with them for the most part. Um, It's not always the case, but because so much of these, this debate about issues has been taken off of main street and online, uh, a lot of the way that the platforms had been set up originally has reinforced uh, that desire to kind of affiliate with people who think like me and only to engage with people like that. Uh, and the algorithms of, help with that, too. The algorithms are a huge part of it. So one thing that we've always advocated for is that the company should be much more upfront about how the algorithms are working. Now, the companies will tell you that all of them have done taken various measures to tweak the algorithms and try to change this over time. Uh, but there has not been a lot of public conversation about the way the algorithms work. The you know, companies guard that information uh, very closely. And I think many Americans don't even realize that they may be falling into this trap where uh, they're only seeing certain types of information. They may have a thousand friends on Facebook that are incredibly diverse, but the algorithm may be only showing them information from 50 of those people who are very similar to them. And most Americans, it's not something that they chose in their privacy settings or in their newsfeed settings. It was pushed on them by the companies primarily for commercial reasons. And so there's a lot of work, I think, that can be done in that space. The other part of it, getting down to the local level, is people can just take a lot of this back off of offline. I mean, ideally, that's what would happen. You'd see people invest the, the time they have if they want to engage in political debates more in person through civic organizations, through local their local communities. Uh, to uh, engage more on that person-to-person level rather than doing all of this uh, on, on the Internet. But um, that's, that's a big part of reinforcing often kind of what you already think suddenly pops up on your newsfeed and you feel that validation of your previously held view. We're talking about 2020 elections, and that, that sends my mind to the holiday dinner table when some uncomfortable conversations come up. You know, the, the, sub, the subject comes up. Uh, the United States is, is no different than one of the authoritarian regimes who are, you know, at the end of the day, trying to assert their own ideological, their own national goals. How is it different from, from what we're doing in terms of promoting American values and democracy as opposed to what the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans or the Iranians are doing in terms of trying to undermine that democratic system. 
So I think about this in in a few different ways, and it's an it's an important question. Um, the first is that you know when the U.S. engages in democracy promotion activities, we do so in an open and transparent way. Um, we uh, you know don't hide anything about the fact that we're supporting um, activists um, and and democratic fighters and human rights champions around the world, and we do it proudly. Um, we do it openly, and we do it transparently. Um, and so I think that that is that is is um, one point that's really important. Point two that's really important is in a lot of the places where we do engage in um, some of the activities that are more focused on on helping uh, political parties um, and candidates in the election process, um, that activity is all undertaken, um, that capacity building is all undertaken in a way that is available to parties, um, you know, across the political spectrum. Um, we don't sort of pick and choose a side or who um, who groups like NDI, IRI, um, the National Endowment for Democracy, these arms, um, you know, non, non-governmental arms that do a lot of this work. Um, you know, they engage um, with a wide uh, wide group of, of political parties or certainly make their um, – make their services available to them. And then the last point for me, which is, I think, the most important, is that what the United States uh, does in its efforts to promote democracy is about um, giving individuals the voice in their own countries um, to determine their futures, right? It goes back to where we started in a way about um, government that's responsive to the people, and that has to be um, about sort of citizen-led democracy. Um, and, you know, we sort of champion the strengthening of institutions and uh, and the building of them. And what Putin is doing is actually the mere opposite of all those things, right? He does things covertly. Um, he chooses sides. Um, and he, uh, you know, and, and by choosing sides, that may be sort of choosing both sides and pitting them against each other, right? But it's not about trying to to actually empower, empower voices from within. And then it's really about destroying those institutions. It's about weakening democracy. It's the very antithesis of, of the, the building that we seek to do. Laura, that's a great way to close this. I really appreciate the the time that you spent uh, with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And Jamie, thank you very much for taking the time as well. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for having us on. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.